Welcome to the HRS Podcast, the show about things that can go wrong in the workplace and how to avoid them. This show is sponsored by ECDESC, a firm that uses a unique polling method to spot problems in the workplace, from interpersonal issues like harassment, underutilized talent, or even financial and accounting concerns. After the show, learn more at ECDESC.com. That's E-K-D-E-S-K.com. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Our topic today is high-profile hires and HR risk. Hiring a new person to join your organization always carries a little bit of risk. Will this person be an effective member of the team? Will he or she be retained? But some hires are especially risky because they're for positions that are high-profile in the company, the industry, or to the public. In those cases, any misstep can have embarrassing reputational consequences for the employee and for the organization. Joining us today to discuss the risks of high-profile hires is David Clark. David is the Chief People Officer of Amicus Therapeutics. Prior to joining Amicus, David was VP of Global HR at Alibaba Group and Senior VP of HR and Chief Learning Officer at American Express. He began his HR career in President George W. Bush's White House, where he served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy Director of Presidential Personnel. David, welcome to the HR Risk Podcast. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the meat of the conversation, you've had a unique career in human resources, to say the least. Your first HR job was as deputy assistant to President George W. Bush as director of the Presidential Personnel Office in the White House. You were responsible for recruiting 4,000 of the government's most senior leaders. Could you tell us more about that experience, both from the public service aspect of it, but also from what that was like in terms of the HR function? And where is your career taking you after you've left 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Sure, I'd be happy to. And I get that question about what did you do in the government quite often, so I'm used to telling that story. Andrew, maybe I'll give you a little bit of a background first, just on sort of what presidential personnel does at the White House. There are about 2 million federal government jobs in the government. 4,000 of them serve at the pleasure of the president, meaning for the most part, they change from president to president at the discretion of the president. And they range everything from a politically appointed secretary who might work for a cabinet secretary, all the way up to and including the president's cabinet, ambassadors, heads of agencies, things like chairman of the Fed, the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, the head of the IRS. Most of them are in the public eye and fairly well known. Some are a little bit more obscure, but they all truly do serve at the pleasure of the president and tend to switch every couple of years. The people who run that office are the assistant to the president and the deputy assistant to the president for presidential personnel. They're both presidential senior staff. They serve at the pleasure of the president and they work at the White House in general. If it were compared to the private sector HR, it would sort of be a combination of roles like the head of talent acquisition, onboarding, succession planning, things of that nature. Most operational aspects of HR would have been managed by an office of administration in each of the government agencies or by a similar office inside the White House. And what's different, though, from these public sector ones versus private sector ones is that about 400 or 10% of those positions, those 4,000 positions, all require Senate confirmation as well. So once you identify somebody for a particular high-profile role and the president has agreed to nominate him or her to that role, you then need to work with legislative affairs, the press secretary, White House counsel, agency staff, the FBI, all those sorts of characters to actually move the person through the process and get them confirmed by the Senate before they can actually start in their role. So it's, it's quite different from what you would see in the private sector. And I was just really fortunate to be recruited by two women who ran that office before I got there, one of whom is uh, Dina Powell. 
Dina was the head of presidential personnel at the time, went on to work at the State Department, and most recently, before going to the private sector, was actually President Trump's deputy national security advisor, and another woman named Liza Wright. Liza had come from a formal recruiting firm, Hydrogen Struggles. She had done recruiting for Capital One before that, and she really helped, under Dina's leadership, formalize that office and turn it into a true recruiting office versus sort of just a political appointee office. So she brought me over to help with the transition when President Bush was reelected. I was a subject matter expert, having come from agencies that focused on transportation. She was a recruiting expert, and the bet she made on me was I could help them in a lot of transition that was going to happen likely at the top of the Department of Transportation. Mm -hmm. Went over there for a couple months. I liked them. They liked me. ended up staying and working my way up and ended up running that office in the middle of the second George W. Bush administration. At that point in your career, had you thought about HR as a profession or going into that field, or is it something that just sort of happened along the way that was a, a fortunate accident in your career? Yeah, I think it was probably the latter. It was more of a fortunate accident. I had, through congressional campaigns, managed large teams, you know, recruited hundreds of volunteers to work on campaigns, things like that. In the government agencies where I was chief of staff, I was very heavily involved in HR-type matters, but I was never really a proper HR. And quite frankly, in government agencies, HR, it was more traditional personnel. It was making sure people, you know, signed up for the health care benefits, got their 401k or their first savings plan, whatever it was in the government, those sorts of things. So it wasn't really a strategic business partner as it is in the private sector. So I wasn't quite sure that's what I wanted to do until I got a call from a recruiter who was looking for an HR executive at American Express. And that's where I really started to make the switch into strategic HR roles. And, and so now you're a chief people officer and you have that view kind of both of the talent acquisition and onboarding functions and, and the, the broader strategic role. So today's show is really focused on risks involving high profile hires. Of course, in a presidential administration, literally everyone who is recruited is in some ways a high profile hire. They may not be a household name, uh, but they're People who are monitored by the press, they're monitored by advocacy groups, they're monitored by uh, members of Congress and their staffs, and they're certainly well-known and looked up to in the worlds and industries that they operate in. For example, if I'm somebody at the Treasury Department in an agency that maybe most people haven't heard of, the industry that's regulated by that agency is certainly aware of who I am and, and is kind of following my views and, and what I do pretty closely. So fast forward to today, you own a recruitment process for everyone from the entry level to the C-suite. In your experience, what are the differences between high-profile hires and what I might call regular hires? And are the risks involved different in just magnitude or are they different in kind? Yeah, it's a really good question because when I started doing this back in politics in 1996, you know, there weren't things like Facebook and there weren't things like Tumblr or Instagram and those things. So, you know, not everybody was sort of famous and high profile back then. Now, in politics, you have to sort of act like you're high profile because the enemy is always out to try and take down the principal. And even if you're a low level person, you know, folks will look to you to, to embarrass the president, for instance, or embarrass the cabinet secretary. But if you fast forward to today, no matter what your role is in the company, most people nowadays are hope profile because of things like LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook. And, and frankly, one of the things that scares me as a head of HR is, although your title might not make you high profile, your actions, your activities, et cetera, online could make you very high profile and cause either reputational risk or damage to the company or other sorts of things. You know, I, I coach new employees to think of themselves as high profile, no matter what their title in the organization is. 
what are some of the red flags that you look for, whether somebody is high profile coming in or you want to avoid somebody becoming high profile later on because of something that they've done or have been found to do? And is that a little bit different between the public and private sectors, or is it kind of converging between what might cause risk in that realm? I think one of the things I try to screen for is I try to assess people's integrity, to be honest with you. And when I think about bringing people to the company, no matter what your your role might be, is, you know, what does your integrity look like? Have you been in companies before where there have been embarrassing situations where you may have been involved or may have been at least close to it and could have done something about it and hadn't done something about it? You know, what is your appetite for speaking up against things that you might see that might not be good for the company or might not be good for the shareholder? Yeah, I'm really trying to assess, do you have the ability to be candid, transparent, honest, speak up, and make sure that you sort of help promulgate a culture of integrity at the company? And I think through both the interview process, through specific examples, and through formal assessment, those sorts of things can be assessed out, especially when you're in a highly regulated company like like mine today in the biotech or when in my former company, you know, financial services, you're highly regulated you really want to make sure that you've got people who think about those things appropriately. So when HR leaders and, and business leaders are in the hiring process for a role that they know is going to be high profile because of the title or the position that it occupies, what are some extra diligence steps or resources they should be using to make sure it's going to be a successful hire, a successful onboarding, and that the new employee is going to meet the expectations of that role? Yeah, I think two things I look for. One is I look for somebody who's had the experience. So if you were going to be a high-profile person in a large company, I'd want to look to see that you did it in a smaller company at scale before that. So you actually have some of those experiences and the right judgment to apply to the new role. The second is I think external assessment is really important in situations like this. I remember a very high-profile role at another company I worked in where Honestly, after about 10 interviews, everybody loved this person and thought that he or she would have been terrific in the role. And then we put them through an external assessment that came back where it was sort of really a a deep all-day type interview kind of thing, behavioral questions, all that sort of stuff. And it turned out that the person really wasn't quite what he or she had fooled us to be in that interview process. And so, you know, for me, if it's a really high-profile role, a high-impact role, a senior role, I rely on experts who can sort of draw things out that those of us who do it part-time for per se uh, can't. One person I recently spoke to is a senior manager at a company. And before he moved into the senior management role, he, I think, met with an industrial psychologist for a session. Uh, and I don't know how long it lasted, but that was part of the recruiting process for the company to assess whether he had sort of what it took uh, to sort of make that transition up to senior leadership. Is that kind of what you're thinking of in terms of whether an industrial psychologist should be brought in or somebody with similar skills? Yeah, that's, that's precisely what I'm talking about. And there's a couple of companies out there that are really, really good at it. And, and, and like I said, they're able to draw things out that frankly don't come out in half-hour interviews or even two-hour interviews for that matter. To some degree, it's helpful also to have that distance because the external assessor isn't necessarily there to make friends with the candidate. Whereas if you're on the recruiting side and inside the company, there's a little bit of a mutual dance and you don't want to press too hard in some ways. That's just kind of the natural flow of, of, I think, any sort of human interaction that might turn into sort of a working relationship as well. Yeah, it's exactly right. And so it could, it could start the relationship off on the wrong foot. And quite frankly, you know, when you're on my side of the table, your job is to sell them as much as it is for them to sell themselves. So that's exactly right. The other great thing that comes out of an assessment like that is let's assume you get through the assessment 
you know, it's 90% pretty good, there's a gap or two, this actually helps you from day one understand what that person's gaps are, and you can start with development plans really on day one and helping them close that gap over time. So, you know, if, if there's something that's going to go wrong, you sort of know that ahead of time and you plan for it and you make sure you invest in that person and get them to where they need to be early on. So let's say that somebody is moving into a high-profile role who hasn't necessarily been in a high profile before. Somebody's moving from what is already a high profile role to a very high profile role. How should that person expect expectations to change for him or herself? How should that person expect life to change? And is that a conversation worth having from your end of the table with that person about what that transition is going to be like and what they should expect and how it's going to impact them and what the expectations are going forward that may be different from what they've experienced and excelled at previously? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, being transparent up front, making sure both sides of the table understand what that expectation is so that you can manage to it are keenly important. I think going from a high-profile role to a highly-profile role, it comes with it a lot of risk. I mean, let's assume you're going from a Section 16 officer to being an NEO at a company. There's additional disclosures and other things that just inherently bring additional risk. And you've got to be comfortable with that. Just your whole life is under scrutiny at that point and to live it accordingly. It means you can't have as many friends inside your company. You, know, you can have professional friends. You can be friendly, but you need to think about your words, your actions, and behaviors constantly. When I was back in politics, I used to think of what's called the Washington Post test, which was you wouldn't want to write anything in an email or say or do anything that you wouldn't want to read about in the Washington Post the next day. That applies today in business too. It's the Instagram test, the Facebook test, all those sorts of things. But I coach people no matter what level they are, especially at high profile levels, to think about your actions, your deeds, your words, even your thoughts in some ways, <laughs> expect that you're going to read about them somewhere tomorrow, and you should really manage yourself and behave accordingly. Do you think that can come into play too as people move into different industries? For example, let's say that somebody was an NEO uh, named executive officer in an industry that is maybe less regulated and less in the public eyesight, but then somebody moves into sort of a financial services role, maybe in the same line of work that is both a more highly regulated and publicly visible industry? I think the watch out there is, you know, understanding the specific rules as it relates to your regulated industry, right? So there are things you can get away with in some companies that are perfectly appropriate, but a slight misspeaking, if you will, in a highly regulated company like financial services or perhaps biotech or pharmaceuticals, that could get you into quite a bit of trouble, which could result in tens of thousands or millions of dollars. And I, I think that's the risk in high profile positions in companies like you just described. There are so many little nuances. If you get something wrong there, it could be extraordinarily expensive. It could result in criminal repercussions. You just have to really be on top of it and be very, very serious about that. Take the job very, very seriously and make sure you don't step in that. So we've talked a lot about the diligence that can go into the process of making high-profile hiring decisions. Let's look at the end of that equation where maybe a high-profile hiring decision hasn't really worked out well. And sometimes you see this. For example, you see, uh, particularly with CEOs, company has hired a CEO, and then a month later, the CEO leaves, and there's a, sort of an ambiguous 8K that's filed that isn't quite clear why that person has left. Or you see senior leaders leave after maybe a year or so. That might be a situation where the hiring choice didn't work out. Maybe it was a mistake. Perhaps credible allegations have emerged against that person that weren't 
known before, or maybe that person just had trouble adapting to the leadership position or the public expectations of the role or to the organization. What should HR leaders do in that situation? And how can they help mitigate and support the company in mitigating the risks that kind of situation poses? One of the best pieces of advice I heard was from Jack Ma, who was the chairman and CEO of Alibaba. And Jack used to say, hire slow and fire fast. I really think that that is pretty good advice. I mean, getting it right from the beginning is probably the most critical thing you can do. And that means taking your time, doing the right assessments and things that we talked about, doing all the due diligence up front, setting expectations, onboarding the person well, training the person well, et cetera, and so forth. That said, if he or she crosses in what I would call integrity line or something doesn't go quite right and it's that person's fault, I would fire that person very, very quickly and not drag it out. So I think, and Jack would say, hire slow, fire fast. I thought that was fabulous advice. And I think that that's the role that, that's one of the things that HR can do to help advise the CEO or other senior executives to do. Nobody likes to be the bad guy. Everybody likes to give people a second chance. But you know when it's time to make a tough call, HR really needs to help get the business there quickly. So David, if I find myself as new high-profile executive, and maybe it's a different experience than I've had before, are there any resources other than this podcast episode that you might point that person to? Yeah, I think one of my um, one of my favorite resources to go to for new executives is a book by my friend Dan Champa. Dan wrote this book called Right from the Start, which is a book for high-profile executives when they start new roles in new companies, sort of how you think about it before you even get there and how you think about the first 90 days, even first year or so. I find it really, really useful and practical, and I would encourage folks who uh, either are in HR or are taking these roles to take a look at that book called Right from the Start. Okay, great. And I'll put a link to that on the show notes for the podcast. David, thank you for joining the HRS podcast. Great. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Take care. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the HR Risk Podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, we always welcome sharing the podcast with HR professionals. You can find notes for today's episode at ekdesk.com slash podcast. That's E-K-D-E-S-K dot slash podcast. Until the next episode, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.